Welcome. <clears throat> Thursday night is um, often an opportunity for people to come to our center who haven't been here before. So I'd first like to welcome those who may not have been here before. So if you haven't been here before, just raise your hand. It's just wonderful. Oh, you're most welcome. As you'll see by the schedule on the bulletin board, there's lots of activities here. When you start meditating, your life gets busy. Um, this Saturday, Richard Shankman is having a class on uh, Introduction to Buddhism. Richard is a very wonderful teacher who has a master's degree in Buddhist studies and brings lots of heart and also wisdom to his teaching and lots of uh, input directly from the Pali texts. Uh, which uh, I, I think is wonderful. It's a, it's a chance to go back to the original source. So Richard's teaching a class on Saturday. Let's see, are there any other announcements? Things coming up? Yeah, yeah um, on the bulletin board and on the far table, there are announcements about S.N. Galenka. He's a very senior teacher in a slightly different style of He'll be at Stanford and uh, oh, I think uh, Flint Center, Cupertino, and also in Brooklyn. Uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend. It's open to the public. And uh, if you haven't seen him and you want to, this might be your last chance because he's getting old, getting old. And then uh, last announcement, uh, the author of this book, Crazy Wisdom, Wes Nister, is coming on June 15th, which is uh, Saturday, a couple weeks down the road. And he and his partner, Terry Vandeveer, are going to teach an all-day class that uh, they call something like, Why Aren't We Always Laughing? Does anybody remember the exact title? Anyway, that's the spirit of it. Why aren't we always laughing? Uh, the idea being, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you smiling? It comes from the... the uh, Zen insight saying that uh, if we really understood what was happening and we really listened and watched clearly, we'd be laughing all the time. And uh, so Wes is a wonderful writer. He's written about four books. Uh, uh, this one is one of my favorites. It's very easily read. It's out in paperback now, which is really nice. It has marginal notes with uh, lots and lots of talks, uh, thoughts. And he weaves a lot from science, and particularly the science of evo evolutionary biology, into his teachings and uh, his thoughts about Buddhist practice and spiritual practice. So we're very lucky to have him and Terry to come. They um, were going to lead... A, um, pilgrimage to Mount Kailas and I think that may have gotten canceled because of travel restrictions um, but anyway he and Terry committed to do this even before that they were just arriving back from Mount Kailas and for our Dharma friends group here at the center in Redwood City he offered to do this day so encourage you to Make some time to do that, and um, 
it's a, an unusual opportunity to have an intimate contact with somebody that's written a lot of books and and does a lot of uh, sort of major national teaching. I had the opportunity to sit with Wes in Yucca Valley about uh, three years ago, and it was a retreat that Jack Cornfield led, and it was a wonderful retreat. And Yucca Valley is a remarkable place. If you've never been down in the desert, it's so peaceful and so uh, supportive of practice. And Wes's job was to get up in the morning and lead the first sit every morning. And uh, it's a special opportunity. At that time, I um, had just kind of restarted my meditation practice after a lot of years of being busy in the world and doing family and business and uh, starting a nonprofit. And it was an amazing opportunity to have such a long stretch of time in such a peaceful place. And I remember coming back from that retreat and people would say, oh, how was it? What did you experience? And the phrase that popped in my mind was, once again, I am friends with my mind. And it, it just... Uh, it seemed to capture that that uh, there had been some years of being un- not friendly with my mind, maybe in opposition or maybe uh, too stressed to notice, uh, too busy to notice. And it felt wonderful to be at last friends with my mind, once again, at least for that period of time. And to take it lightly, and that's one of the things that Wes will help us a lot with. Well, tonight, I'd like to focus on a topic that isn't often uh, discussed in spiritual circles. And I don't know why that is. It should be right at the top of the list as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I've done a lot of reading over the years and uh, a lot of retreats, and it, it gets short shrift. So this is my chance to kind of put it back out and give it a little bit of uh, attention, bring it back into our consciousness more. My topic tonight is this very body, the Buddha. And it comes from a reading that I'll read at the very end, the particular title. Before I start, I wanted to let you hear a few thoughts from the Pali texts and also from uh, the Diamond Sutra, which is a Mahayana text. And these are talks about what a Dharma talk should be. And so in the spirit of uh, reflective living and being aware of life. I'd, I'd like us to be aware of what we want from this Dharma talk. And so I'm just going to read a little bit from the Diamond Sutta. Subhuti is um, one of the supplicants who has gone to the Buddha. The Buddha is uh, often in the sutras is sitting under a tree or sitting peacefully somewhere and someone comes up and has a 
question or a challenge. So Subhuti has been asking him about a teaching, give me a teaching. And the Buddha replies, Subhuti, do not say that the Tagata, that's uh, the word that the Buddha used for uh, him as teacher, the period of time he was teacher. Do not say that the Tagata conceives the idea, I will give a teaching. Do not think that way. Why? If anyone says that the Tagata has something to teach, that person slanders the Buddha because he does not understand what I say. Subhuti, giving a Dharma talk, in fact, means that no talk is given. This is truly a Dharma talk. Diamond Sutras leads us into seeing things in a different way by stating things in it, maybe in an incomprehensible way. He says, Then Subhuti said to the Buddha, World-honored one, in the future will there be living beings who will feel complete confidence when they hear these words. The Buddha said, Subhuti, those living beings are neither living beings nor non-living beings. Why is that? Subhuti, what the Tagata calls non-living beings are truly living beings. Subhuti asked the Buddha, world-honored one, is the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind that the Buddha attained the unattainable? The Buddha said, that is right, Subhuti. Regarding the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind, I have not attained anything. That is why it is called the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind. So he goes on to say, the Buddha goes on to say that of all the things that you can do if you gather thousands and thousands of treasures and pile them up and uh, give them to the people of the world, that it will be still not as much as the happiness resulting from that virtuous act which results from a son or daughter of a good family who gives rise to the awakened mind and reads, recites, accepts, and puts into practice the sutra and explains it to others. Without being caught up in signs, just according to things as they are, without agitation. Why is this? All composed things are like a dream, a phantom, a drop of dew, a flash of lightning. That is how to meditate on them. That is how to observe them. So the Dharma talk won't be a Dharma talk unless you create it inside yourself. So this my opportunity is to put out some things that uh, may spark something, but you will give the Dharma talk. Alan Watts says, though it seems that I know that I know, what I would like to see is that the I that knows me when I know that I know that I know. Anybody read Alan Watts? He's uh, a very important 1950s and 60s figure uh, uh, academic who brought Zen to the U.S. or was really important in that. He says, 
To understand Buddhism, you must be willing to die, go crazy, or become nothing. But what I like is what St. Teresa says. She says, the important thing is not to think much, like Alan wants. It sounds like he's been thinking a lot. He wants to know what the I is that knows that he knows. So St. Teresa says, the important thing is not to think much, but to love much. And so do that which best stirs you to love. So the first Dharma talk that I gave to this group was uh, last November, I think. And um, it was on heart. And the second Dharma talk I gave was uh, February or March, and it was on uh, liberating the mind. And so here we are at what's left, the body. And my thoughts on the body are um, a lot due to a life that I've led, which is very body-centered. I enjoy physical things. Uh, The physical world, to me, is endlessly fascinating. And the ability to lose myself in it is always a challenge for me. And so sitting practice has been a really marvelous opportunity for me to not get lost, not to be at the uh, mercy or be at the whim of what's happening in my body. And it's been a real joy to have that kind of liberation happen. There's a problem with the body, and let me just give you a uh, short and I think very wonderful comment about what this may be. This is from Writing for Our Lives, a publication that comes out of Santa Cruz. This morning I stand in Sunrise Orchard, breathe apple air, feel kinship with my body, muscled thighs beneath me, I hope my body understands and can forgive the hate I held, not really for the body, but for the self I misunderstood inside. This morning, lupin flowers inside me. Redwoods fill my core. I begin to heal, to be home inside my skin. So I think that's the problem with the body, that it, it has engendered lots of difficult feelings and difficult experiences for us. And as much as we want to be centered and clear and give ourselves to practice and work on it, there are still things that are, have an edge to them. The, uh, the guilt we feel sometimes. And, if you imagine yourself looking in a mirror with no clothes on and just passing your eyes over your body and notice your body and notice the parts that you like and notice if there are any parts that may not be as pleasant, your reaction may not be as harmonious. So what is this? The body is what we have. It is what it is. 
and yet we want something different. (laughs) The Buddha said, it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception and intellect, that there is the whole cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the end of the cosmos, and the path to the end of the cosmos. That's from the Rohitasa Sutta. It is just within this fathom-long body. So to me, mystics over the years have been saying that what we understand and experience as being universal love, we sense here. This is the home. This is the temple. This is the, the place that resonance happens for us and that we get In Buddhist psychology, the first of the five aggregates that we are made of, um, looking at the the pieces of our life and who we are, the first of the five is the physical body. Others seem to occupy more attention and be more compelling. Their consciousness, perception, feelings, and mental formations. And they seem to be more the subject of practice. And I speculated about why that is. Thich Nhat Hanh says, this body is not me. I am caught in this body. So that seems to be the, the tenor of a lot of spiritual talk. And my thought on that is that it gets misunderstood. It, it sounds, this body is not me. It's, it sounds like uh, you, you're denying something that really is. He says, I am not caught in this body. <clears throat> sounds like he's affirming something that maybe really have happened. But he goes on to say, I am life without boundaries. I have never been born and I will never die. And then he goes on to talk about the five remembrances, the things that remind us about the difficulties of the body. The first one is, I am of the nature to grow old. There's no way to escape growing old. Second one is, I am of the nature to have ill health. Then I'm of the nature to die and that all that is dear to me and everyone I love will change. So those four kind of statements or remembrances are held in the teachings as being very important to keep us clear of attachment. So I think really what it comes down to is that the body is so easy to get attached to. It's delicious and compelling or painful and compelling. But in any case, it's so easy to get attached to. We come from a history where our bodies were what allowed us to survive. Now it seems like it's more our minds that allow us to survive. And our bodies are sort of the locus or the the center 
of this process that keeps us alive in the world. The fifth of the remembrances is my actions are my only true belongings. So that to me is the key to appreciating the body in spiritual practice. The body is what gives us the ability to take action in the world. And as we take action, we create a destiny. Remember the phrase that Ram Dass popularized back in the early 70s about sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny. I think that's an interesting chain. Thought, action, habit, destiny. So thought is a a very fluid medium. Once the action takes place, habits follow, and then destiny follows. I'm just going to pause for a second and and just uh, hold that chain. We'll just sit quietly for uh, just a minute or so and just let the whatever comes up come up for you in terms of sowing a thought, reaping an action, sowing an action reaping a habit, sowing a habit, reaping a destiny. How do you see that happening in your life? Well, however it realizes for you and your thoughts, it's a process that really affirms that our body is a key piece of this. To take an action, we must speak, we must reach out, we must write, we must do something. And so externalizing our own spiritual core is the gift of the body. I think it's so wonderful to look at the lives of masterful people and see how what was inside has been externalized outside. So wonderful to see good things being manifested in a physical way because you know that they had to start in a spiritual or intuitive way. I remember Joseph Goldstein talking at a retreat I was at back at IMS. And he talked about when he first meditated, 
he was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And one of the guys also in the Peace Corps had said, oh, you know, these Thai people meditate. And you ought to try it. And so just on a lark, like he was going to the local winery or something like that, he showed up at a meditation center and uh, with a little bit of instruction, sat for five minutes. And he was very careful to set his watch. He had an alarm on his watch. And uh, he wanted to make sure that he didn't sit too long. So set his alarm for five minutes. And at the end of that five minutes, he said his life was forever changed. Because in that five minutes, he knew that he had an inner life. And it was so remarkable for him to realize that everything that happened after that came from that five minutes. And it was so, he looks back on it as being so unpredictable. I mean, he could have very well gone to the park or taken a walk in the woods or uh, stopped for a bite to eat. But he ended up going and experiencing this five-minute sit. And sowed a thought and reaped an action. And the habit and destiny have turned into this marvelous center that is back in Barrie, Massachusetts, which is sort of the, call it the, the mother organization of our group right here. Vipassana practice brought to the West. And uh, so it all kind of sprang from there. It's wonderful to see the, the f- outflow of things that resulted in us actually having this place here today. And that all started, uh, you know, with lots of help along the way with a thought. Many thoughts, actually. So the body is our asset. The body gives us a chance to project into the world qualities of love, of union, of inclusion, of appreciation, whatever qualities we have created inside, which many people call character, those qualities can become something in this world. They become something through our children or through our work or through our relatives and our friends. Every day, every minute, we are creating. And who knows when we might be the friend that says, come sit for five minutes. And a sitting for five minutes turns into a complete nationwide movement of Vipassana in the U.S. or something on that. One of the teachers that taught Joseph's teacher, uh, Ajahn Chah, was Ajahn Mun. And he wrote a poem that I think talks about the body in an interesting way. He says, I was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. I truly wanted release from aging and mortality. Then one day I came to know the truth, abandoning the cause of suffering and compounded things. I found a cave of wonders 
of endless happiness, the body. As I gazed throughout the cave of wonders, my suffering was destroyed. My fears appeased. I gazed and gazed around the mountainside, experiencing unbounded peace. So that's an experience of discovering the inner part of the body, the body as the, the house in which we practice. A couple other uh, thoughts about the body that the Buddha, or at least the words that we have that are passed down by the Buddha, passed down from that time, say. And again, often people came to ask questions. In this case, the question was uh, from a person who was not feeling well in their body. He said, my body, sir, now feels like it's drugged. I've lost my bearings. Things are unclear to me. Sloth and divisiveness surround me. I am unhappy in leading the holy life. I have doubts about mental qualities. I have doubts about all things. So what did the Buddha reply? That's the way it is for a person who does not guard the doors to his sense facilities, who does not know moderation in eating, who is not devoted to wakefulness, who does not clearly understand skillful qualities, and who is not devoted day after day to the development of the wings to awakening. So the monk was charged with doing those things. And then he came back and said, how do I guard these faculties? How do I know moderation in eating? And the reply? Take food not playfully, not for intoxication, not for putting on bulk, not for beautification, but simply for the survival and continuance of this body, for ending its afflictions, for the support of the holy life, thinking, I will not destroy old feelings of hunger and not create new feelings. This I will maintain myself for blamelessly I will live on in comfort. It's amazing how uh, I remember being surprised that in the United States, a um, huge percentage of people have problems with eating. We are a country that has an abundance of food. Our bodies 
need a certain amount of food, but we seem to continually be struggling with how do we get the right balance? How do we provide just what's needed so that the holy life is maintained, so that the life of the mind is enriched by what we eat? So there's some advice from 2,500 years ago. And then another question to the Buddha, and how does the monk remain focused on the body in and of itself? The teaching is something I'll I'll paraphrase, that that, um, all things work well when they are done in and of themselves. So when a person is walking, they just walk. When a person is sitting, they just sit. When a person is thinking, they just think. In the Christian tradition, it's talked about as letting the eye be single. So how do we let the eye be single? So the, the words passed on from the Buddha say, In this way, the monk remains focused internally on the body in and of itself. He remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body and on the phenomenon of passing away. And he remains unsustained by not clinging to anything. He remains sustained by not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a monk stays focused on the body in and of itself. So that brings up for me another piece about the body which is difficult and which has, I think, given great difficulty to spiritual teachers and spiritual thinkers and spiritual practitioners, and that is that the body dies. This vehicle that we enjoy so much and that we create with and we are so blessed actually to have at our disposal will die. And that death, it seems like such a a difficult ending. And I've been reminded of that in some of the work that I do with children in helping them handle grief I work with an organization called CARA based in Palo Alto that has programs for children and parents who have lost someone uh, very near to them, very dear. And the group I work with has lost someone due to homicide or suicide. So a very sudden, unexpected, um, rending kind of loss. And when children come into this program, we have a particular way of working with them. And it's because of the way children look at death. And characteristically, um, there's been studies on how children view death. And until about the age of nine or 10, death isn't seen as the most difficult event or the worst outcome. About age nine or 10, 
children learn about death, they, they begin to develop enough abstract thinking to understand that there is no coming back, that there's absolute ending as far as physical life goes. And so at that point, children will say, yes, death is the most difficult outcome. But prior to that, the most difficult outcome is seen as separation. So when children come into our program, if they're below age 9 or 10, we don't ask them to talk about their experience. We ask them to draw about it. And we give them a map of the body. And we say, okay, if this is your body, we want you to color parts of your body and use, uh, say, the one color for a part that feels good and another part that feels fearful, another color for a part that feels um, hopeful. And so we give them some ideas and then let them color this body. And after they've been in the program for a couple of years, we ask them to do it again. And it's so amazing to see how this body metaphor helps them externalize things. So they begin with the body. In the body, they have feelings. They have sensations. And when they start there, then they can deal with the process of the loss that they've experienced. So we'll all have a loss. Someday we'll lose a dear friend or a relative or possibly a spouse or a partner, uh, boss. In fact, when you think about it, life is a series of losses. It's <clears throat> accommodating to the change that will come because all relationships will come to an end, either through death or estrangement. And all bodies will pass through decline and decay and death. And so what's the use of the body then? I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, why were it? Somebody once said uh, that the great cosmic joke is to give us this gorgeous, incredible tool and have us go through the, a learning process that takes 15, 20, in my case, way more than that number of years to learn how to behave with it, how to deal with it. And then it goes away, seemingly without much follow-on, maybe a little follow-on. So it's a difficult question for spiritual life. And as we know, all the major religions have come up with some kind of statements, um, some sense of what happens. Marcus Borg says, life is short and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. Suzuki Roshi, uh, in the book Crooked Cucumber, written by David Chadwick, who gave a Dharma talk about 
six months ago here, uh, was reported to be talking with his wife at the end of his life. And uh, he chose to spend his last days down at Tassajara at the Zen Mountain Center and in the garden. And his wife uh, was very concerned because he had kidney failure and um, things weren't looking good for him. He had very little energy in general. And he would pour it into the garden. And so she would urge him, don't go to the garden, don't go to the garden, rest today. And he, his response that was recorded says, what teaches best is about to die. What teaches best is about to die. So I think we can apply that in our lives. Uh, what I hear in that for me is that when I am at my best, when I, when I can externalize my spiritual life, my spiritual understanding best, is when I'm ready to give it away, when I'm not attached, when there's no clinging whatsoever, when if that's the last thing I do, it's just fine. It works for me. One of the ways that I choose to externalize my spiritual life is by being in nature. And uh, some of you have been part of backpacking trips or camping trips or um, hikes and so forth that uh, Dharma friends have put together. And it's just a, to me, it's just a wonderful part of our community here that we, uh, we meet each other here in the silence in, in our meditative practice, but also in nature, out in the world. Nature for me has always been so connecting and, and enlivening. And so the part for me that works is the ability to use my body while I'm in nature. And I think um, it probably comes from the end of evolution. I've done a lot of reading uh, in evolutionary biology, started by Wes Nisker, uh, because I find that when I meditate, my experience has a lot to do with what I imagine life being like 50,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago when we lived in nature and when nature was everything and when we were in survival mode most of the time. Gary Snyder has written about this in his meditation. And he says that to him, the meditative state, samadhi, having a space inside that's full and and clear is for him the same state that a hunter had when crouched in a jungle or crouched in a clearing waiting for something to move, waiting for something to change. So that, that place of alert stillness. 
And so for me, that's why being in nature really works. I, I sense that place of alert stillness, of waiting, of, of letting whatever sounds, whatever movement, whatever changes come and just noting, just observing. Maybe not even noting with a word, but just letting that be there. So the Buddha, actually, was very up about nature. A phrase uh, talking about the Buddha from the scriptures, born in the woods, enlightened in the woods. In the woods he passed away. Lord Buddha to his followers said, Choose to frequent the forest woods. Wendell Berry is uh, a farmer, spent a lot of time in the woods. He also writes poetry. He says, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, I fear for what my life and my children's life may be. I go down and I lie where the woods, wood drakes rest in this beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. John Muir, one of my great heroes, said, when you tug at anything in nature, you find that it's all connected up. So the body in nature is a way of finding that all connected up feeling. So that in the midst of the grief and the loss and the dissolution of relationships and violence and whatever is surrounding us, there is that connection. I think it's a great observation. And uh, when I go into nature, I'm really aware of that, uh, that uh, it's not about everything divided up into niches and niches being bordered by boundaries and so forth. It, it's a whole. Yeah, it's the, car, the car's influence on us. 
Yeah. yeah that's a big, uh, big topic. And actually, yeah, I, you know, it's it's an interesting observation, and I think what I would say is that each of us has to decide how much of Descartes' uh, approach works for us. And depending on where we are in our lives, um, you know, there may be more or less. Um, I remember when I was starting a business, I was really happy to have done a business plan and spent a lot of time and put together what I thought the income was going to be and what the expenses were, and then I had people look at it and pick it apart. It's sort of the Descartes, you know, tear it apart into its pieces and see if, how the pieces work. And the miracle of electronic spreadsheets made it all possible to put it on, seemingly, to create a reality. I remember, you know, looking at these spreadsheets and thinking, my God, you know, all I have to do is reduce this a little bit and then this happens. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it was almost as good as I didn't need to do it. It was just there happening. So, I, you know, that, it, it was great. It was, it was really beautiful. Wonderful experience in the business work. And, uh, and now when I look back on it, you know, what really made that business work was that I loved my clients. It was a, people would call me that I had not seen for years and years. Uh, word would travel from person to person that I couldn't have paid them to do. But they just did it because there was some love and respect that was created. And so I, I think, where do you put that in the spreadsheet? You know, is that some sort of a meta process that the spreadsheet lives within? So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, somehow we, in the Western world especially, we do this dance where we're so analytical and yet... In the, in the special moments when the full moon comes up, we know that there's much more, that it's, it's all within something. So. It's, it's interesting. In fact, one of the things that I wanted to end with is uh, some thoughts by a guy named Nisargadatta. Uh, a shopkeeper who lived in India and was uneducated but full of wisdom and people traveled from all over the world. And this is a compilation of recordings that were made as people would come and ask him questions and what he said. And this is where I want to end with my thoughts on bodies that... um, The questions come, and we'll see what he says. So the questioner says, I am always somebody with its memories and habits. I know no other. I am. So memories and habits. Mr. Gaudana says, Maybe something prevents you from knowing. When you do not know something which others know, what do you do? And the questioner says, 
I seek the source of their knowledge under their instruction. Nisargadatta says, Is it not important to you to know whether you are in the body or something else? Or maybe nothing at all? Don't you see that all your problems are your body's problems? Food, clothing, shelter, family, friends, name, fame, security, survival. All these lose their meaning the moment you realize that you may not be a mere body. So they go on talking about what is, what's more with the body. Surrounded by a world full of mysteries and dangers, how can I remain unafraid? Your own little body is full of mysteries and delights, yet you are not afraid of it, for you take it as your own. What you do not know is that the entire universe is your body, and you need not be afraid of it. It says, your own little body is full of mysteries. What you do not know is that the entire universe is your body, and you do not need to be afraid of it. Final word from the Buddha relates to the topic. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright and full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is that lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. So that's from the Dhammapada. This very body, the Buddha. And one last piece that's a, a poem that I think puts this all together. And this is my friend and partner Zoe gave me, uh, loaned me this book called The Gift, Poems by Hafiz, the great Sufi master. He says... The earth life in its glass, the earth lifts its glass to the sun. And light, light is poured. A bird comes and sits on a crystal rim, and from my forest cave I hear singing. An emerald bird rises from inside me, and now it sits upon the beloved's glass. I have left that dark cave forever. My body has blended with his. I lay my wing as a bridge to you so that you can join us singing. So whether it's a dark cave or a source of light, may all of us experience true liberation in our bodies and have our bodies be the way of externalizing that liberation for each of us individually and for other people. So I just share with a, a uh, 
quiet inner time, have a couple minutes of quiet, and then uh, sharing of merit, and we'll be finished. May the merit of this time we have spent together considering the body and our lives and the spirit that comes into our world through us, may the merit go to all the sitters and dharma transmitters, all the life teachers and the earth lovers, the people that have used their thinking to bring us the destiny that we have experienced and lived and learned from and enjoyed. So it's just nine o'clock, and I'd like to honor our commitment to end on time. And so uh, those of us that need to leave, great. If anybody would like to uh, uh, hang out in, in this body, spiritual space, I'd be very happy to do so. And look forward to seeing you all down the road. And may the Dharma path be filled with light for you all. Good night.